Hello and welcome to today's webinar. My name is Mark Haywood and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. It's great that you could all join us, sadly virtually and not in person, but maybe we can get together this time next year. So today we're going to be talking about the challenges that firms like yours face in terms of complex and seemingly constant rates of change that are coming down the pipe while still having to maintain critically high levels of operational resilience. It's great that you could join us and joining me, as you can probably see on screen, are some great guests that we've got lined up. Firstly, Marcus Wildsmith, who is the Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Cutover. Second, Rick Cudworth, partner at Deloitte, where he runs their reputation crisis and resilience practice. And last but not least, Mike Butler, who works for Barclays, where he recently led their internal operational resilience transformation program. Gents, welcome to the webinar. It's great to have you with us again. Um, just a couple of words from me before I, um, Rick, I'm going to put the first question uh, at your door. I hope that's okay. But I've had the privilege of running operational resilience programs in several um, major financial services organizations. And I know we have an audience that's mainly made up of FS, but uh, there are other industries represented. So we'll make sure this is as um, diverse as possible. But one of the things that I've observed, and I think we've probably all observed, is that there's a huge amount of great work that's been done in this space, but there's a huge amount of work still to do, and that's not going to end. Um, as we get more integrated at not just an industry and sector level, but perhaps a city, country, and even international level, what does the regulatory landscape look like? How joined up are we when it comes to operational resilience and managing change? I'm guessing levels differ, is that fair? I think, Mark, it is fair at the moment, but I'm hopeful there's a good news story as we go through this. Um, about last week, just last week, we produced a paper called Resilience Without Borders. Okay? And that paper was specifically looking at financial services and the regulatory activity on operational resilience. So we looked at what's happening in the EU, what's happening in the US, specifically what's happening in the UK, who uh, the paper confirmed, you know, I've got a lead position at the moment in terms of regulatory direction on this, and also briefly looked at what's happening in Singapore. So we looked around the world at regulatory aspects. And in the paper, the, there's a clear conclusion that there's significant regulatory policy development going on, uh, but it's coming primarily from a sort of national and jurisdictional point of view, rather than top down. Now, having said that, though, um, and, you know, the concern of doing it that way would be we'll get divergence and there won't be that sort of uh, alignment between different regulators. But having said that, just a couple of weeks ago, the BCF, Basel uh, Committee for Banking Supervision, produced their, its own consultation paper and it outlines seven, seven high-level principles. And we looked at that paper, one thing that comes clear to us is you know, those, those principles are high level enough to give some flexibility for uh, national regulators and, and jurisdictional regulators to have some flexibility underneath it. And if I look specifically then at the UK's approach and how that aligns, we'd go, they actually do align. If you, if you follow the UK regulatory direction of travel and, and their, where their policy is heading, you would meet all the BCBS principles. So that's a good sign that there is starting to be that line. So I think I think we're on that journey. We're getting there. The other thing I'd say, just moving it outside financial sector, and again, certainly here in the UK, we've had a recent report from the National Infrastructure Commission about improving resilience within the national infrastructure. 
And when you look at it, you can see the financial sector here has been a, and the regulators in the financial sector have participated in that. And the recommendations they're making in that paper actually do align very closely to what our financial sector regulators are saying. So we're starting to see alignment across other regulators, across other industries, at least here in the UK. But I think, you know, there is some positive uh, news coming from this. Let's hope it stays that way. Thanks, uh, Rick. Um, Mike, if I may, uh, just coming to you, you're a practitioner um, in this space. In terms of the regulatory landscape that Rick just articulated, what does that mean for firms, not just like yours, but indeed the entire industry? What's the industry financial services facing as we move forward, as the sector tries to become more joined up from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, I think uh, you know Rick, Rick summed up really nicely the way the regulators are looking at this from a financial services perspective. But I think a lot of it is is sort of relative common sense at the same time. When you when you think about what the messages are that are underlying it, it's it's essentially you know in times of crisis, make sure that you are supporting certainly for the UK, the UK PLC. So you know the, the financial services make sure everything will flow day in day out, and also our customers and and. You know, Joe Bloggs on the street who's able to actually continue to transact during those times of crisis as well. And that aligns nicely with what we've been trying to do for years anyway with, with, our, with our products and our propositions to make sure that they're highly available for our customers. I do think that what it's allowed us to do is to start to communicate much more with a common language and a common purpose so that we pivot a lot more around business services or front-to-back processes at the, at one end of them, the the customer or the client. So we're looking at the external interfaces and the perception and the interactions that we have, that our, that our organizations would have with those customers and clients and ensure that everything that we need to deliver that, whether it's technology, whether it's a, a contact center, so people, whether it's a, a critical building or whether it's a third party that we may have, is able to provide the capabilities that we require to have that um, that service proposition and, and, and service quality for our customers. So I think that, you know, you, you, you don't see a, what's really nice about the way that I think the UK regulators and now a lot of the rest of the world regulators are approaching it. They're not all writing thou must kind of guidelines. You know, what they're doing is that we're having a much more thoughtful approach to ensuring that um, we're just providing a reliable service for the UK and for individuals within the UK. And that's something which is very easy for us to conceptually adopt. Um, at a more complex level though, when you go from a company that may be over 300 years old and, or companies that have grown organically over, through acquisition, et cetera, it becomes a lot more challenging, particularly through technology to be able to do that at the same time as perhaps we're trying to drive cloud adoption and, and trying to tighten our belts a bit as well. So conceptually, it may be logical, it may have an element of common sense in it, but it does become challenging to mobilize at scale to, to really address some of the, uh, the clangers that may be uncovered through individual programs. I certainly had my own fair share of, uh, of clangers. Just on the point that you made about the customer-centric view, you know, customers and, and regulators and indeed politicians have a, a very limited appetite for, for outages and operational resilience problems at the moment. Um, and I think we'd all agree that that's a good thing. We should, ha we should hold ourselves to, to high account. Does it also mean framing the problems and the challenges in a manner that would mean something to the customer rather yeah. than talking simply about technology? Absolutely. I think internally we, we've got to 
get over that hurdle as much as externally as well. You know, when we talk internally about, you know, issue with widget Y, you know, it, it, that kind of means something to a small group of people who understand what widget Y is and what widget Y delivers. But for the rest of the organization, it could be absolutely meaningless. But if you say to them that there is a problem with our ability to check balance because of an issue with widget Y, and we customers, you know, 20,000 customers have been unable to check balance for the last three hours, then all of a sudden it brings it to life a lot more. And so it gets the right focus on it, it gets the right uh, communication and the right, and essentially the right, the right remediation steps, I would say, much broader remediation steps than just fix widget Y. You know, you've got fixed widget Y, make sure we're communicating with regulators, make sure we've got good, con a good clear customer communications in place, make sure we're proactively it, advising customers to achieve widget Y some other way, yeah, the, the, the journey some other way. So um, definitely bring it to life a lot more. And I think it helps some folks that are perhaps buried in the organization that haven't necessarily understood or fully appreciated what it is that they're delivering and how it affects the bank. Because everything someone does in the bank makes has an impact uh, ultimately outside to a customer or client and it brings a lot of it to life which is which is quite good as well people feel a lot more connected to our services absolutely we'll come back to that rick i also want to come back to your to the paper that you put out um last week um in terms of you know kind of reimagining resilience because i think mm -hmm. um the audience would have um great interest in that um marcus um sorry it's taken me so long to get to you but welcome um to the webinar so just on that then um We've got a situation in which change is coming down the pipe at a constant rate of knots. If it, and if it's not constant, it's getting faster. Um, you and I have had conversations in the past about the fact that one of the major causes of operational disruption and outages is, in fact, poorly managed change. So how is a firm like Cutover helping industries like the one that Mike and indeed many of the audience work in address this challenge of having to manage huge and complex rates of constant change whilst also maintaining high levels of operational resilience. What can you do to help? Yeah, I think we definitely look at it as um, two sides of the coin. And so whilst we do focus on what would be seen as um, sort of traditional resilience activities, such as um, kind of managing and executing tests and um, having a robust set of recovery plans for, for as, as Mike called it, the widgets, um, I think in that sphere, we're definitely seeing the, um, as, as Mike described, the desire to knit those widgets together to be something meaningful and have that intelligence layer over the top so that it isn't just talking about the technology but going much more up, upstream. Um, but we definitely recognise that um, kind of having good processes in place for dealing with something and being ready to deal with something is part of it, but actually just having a great process for managing day-to-day -day change and doing that in a repeatable way, um, kind of making use of automation and gradually kind of including more automation into the process, but doing it in a way that you can step out to human activity when you need to, when something doesn't go to track or when you're dealing with processes that are inherently a little brittle and therefore you need um, people available to kind of nudge them along. And we're very much focused on both of those, the um, traditional resilience testing activities, but also just on how do you get really good at, good at change, because if you do that, um, then you are, you're, you're far less likely to cause a problem. Is there a, I guess I'll throw this out, is there a, is there a myth, because we should also understand that for every major financial services organization out there that's been in existence for a long time, 
in some cases, several hundred years, there's a new generation of startups, challenger organizations um, that come down the pipe. Is there a myth, do you think, that challenger banks or challenger companies have um, an advantage that will never be eroded? Challengers have the same problems or similar problems to legacy organizations, don't they? Just because you've gone, for example, fully cloud native doesn't mean that you won't have um, problems. Marcus, I know that, that you work with um, a mixture of uh, very established and long um, standing uh, organizations, but also you work with a lot of um, new entrants as well. Is it a myth that new entrants have this given right to protection? I think there's a piece which is um, the kind of the concept of legacy being just because you've um, um, you've got data centers and um, you've got kind of you're running hardware and you're doing it yourself and it's on premise. That is a type of legacy, but equally fast growing companies build up their own type of legacy in terms of their processes, their ability to um, kind of test and deploy code. And whilst newer companies have without a doubt started off with a, with a, a cleaner sheet and have, have built themselves on the basis of um, kind of being fully hosted in the cloud, for example, that doesn't mean that through the pace of change they've gone through that they still don't have challenges, which is, you know, if, if I knew what I know now, I wouldn't have built it like this, both in terms of um, kind of the architecture and the processes. And so I think everyone is dealing with a um, kind of how do I how do I satisfy my customers of the future, given that I've grown incredibly quickly and I need to keep the lights on for what I've got as well, well as response change. I think it's just a different lens. Yeah, that, that classic run the bank, change the bank still exists no matter how big or small the bank is, right? It's, it's very much a case of, um, you know, of, of, of if you scale too quickly, no matter your size, um, you could have a problem um, coming down um, the line. Um, Rick, if I may, the, the paper that you put out last week addresses, um, for me, a key point, which is we hold things like um, cloud native up as being some kind of silver bullet. You're trying to get organizations from any industry to look at resilience across several different pillars, not just um, technology ones. As I understand it, you're looking at three pillars. You're looking at financial resilience, operational resilience, and indeed reputational resilience. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, the way you've started to rethink the approach that Deloitte has towards resilience? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And it was a busy week last week. So in addition to the regulatory paper I talked about, we, we launched this campaign at the end of last week called Resilience Reimagined, the Resilient Business. And the few things in there, but first we say for a business or an organization to be resilient, there are three core pillars that it stands on. First one is it must be financially resilient. The second is it must be operationally resilient. And the third is it must be reputationally resilient. And the reason we took those three pillars is when you think about where shocks or disruptions hit the organization, it's usually a financial shock or it's a major operational disruption, or it's a reputational issue, a conduct or cultural issue that's come to the fore. It's usually it hits one of those. But for an organization to get through such an event, it needs to be strong on all three pillars. So for example, if you have a financial shock and that reduces your financial strength, even though you're resilient, to raise more funds through investors or from a you know loans from a bank, you need strong reputational resilience. If you don't have that, it's much more difficult to, to, to maintain the financial strength. So these things are interrelated and those are the three core pillars. 
within operational resilience, we're talking about all the non-financial resources. So this is people, workplace, supply chain, all of those aspects. So anything that makes your business model operate and work on a day-to-day -day basis sits in that operational resilience. So those are three core pillars. The other thing we said is to be resilient, you have to do it by design. You can't achieve it by accident. You need to do it by design. And guess what? You need to then ensure it and enhance it through change. So we talk about resilience by design. That's how you achieve it. You maintain it and enhance it through change. And through change is not just uh, ensuring the organization doesn't um, lose some of its resilience when you make change. It's also about seeking the opportunities, the new opportunities for the future. So that adaptive capacity to change with changing market conditions and do that rapidly. And then the third area it says is you have to demonstrate resilience in adversity. So it's all right having it by design. It's all right um, ensuring it through change. But of course, you need to be able to demonstrate that in adversity. So that's all about the sort of capabilities around crisis management and response capabilities that you have there. So that's the sort of dimensions we put in there. There's a lot more to it, but we try to construct a frame that people can sort of uh, look at the problem you like look at this huge topic called resilience and focus in where and specific aspects of where they think they uh, need to or can improve over time. It's fascinating. It's Mike, I'm sure that, that you and the industry that you work in would recognize a lot of that. You and I have had several conversations about the fact that if operational disruption manifests itself in the form of a technology outage, it doesn't mean that technology caused the problem, doesn't it? That that may have been kind of the, I guess the the thing that 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 broke that ended up meaning that the service wasn't available. The last that, thing in the chain. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely the last thing in chain. That could have come from anywhere. That could have been, you know, as Rick says, he talked about culture there. That could have been cost cutting. That could have been poor organisational management. It could have been many things. Do you think we're too quick to assume that technology that causes an outage is a technology problem? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's the reality is in, in certainly financial services, really any industry now, right? Technology is a massive part of delivering service. And, mm. and so having the focus on technology to remediate a problem is probably the right place for it because whether it's the end of a chain is technology or the beginning of the chain is technology for the, where, where the problem manifests itself, that's where we have to go and fix it. Um, but, I, but I do agree, you know, with, with Rick and, and, the, and the new model they've launched, I think that we can't sort of get sidetracked and focused on just making sure our technology is as strong as possible. It's the same in cyber, if you think about cyber, right? If you, if you just spend all your time putting in new tools to be able to defend yourself from a cyber attack, the reality is most of the major breaches have been caused by humans, right? Human errors, clicking on things. Education would have probably solved a lot of that. Um, not in all cases, but certainly education starting from don't click this to have strong passwords to, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so I think in, in resilience, having, having that resilience culture, that true culture woven into the way your company operates is absolutely key. And then everything falls out from that because when you start to think about budget cycles and you know, we talked about the Greenfield startup going cloud native and therefore they've, they've probably got this, they found the silver bullet of resilience, which is cloud, much like the silver bullet for most other things cloud seems to be. But when you, when you've, if you've built your platform to fail, which is essentially what you should do if you're going cloud native, and then you maintain that to Rick's point as well, then you should 
continue to be resilient by design. The reality is that in many cases, we uh, get distracted budget-wise by new enhancements to the detriment of maintaining and, and bringing up uh, some of the older systems. So there is a risk that those startups can, can find themselves in a, a legacy situation relatively quickly. Um, you know, I, I had uh, I had written a, a, an article about what I call transformer companies, and and that really is this was inspired by a couple of organisations that I've seen who have demonstrated this sort of agility and this culture in their organisation to piece all the bits of the puzzle together to reinvent themselves during the you know the COVID crisis uh, to continue to thrive uh, in their and flourish in that time by sort of reinventing their products and and getting new customers and clients. And you know that was a fairly extreme reaction for a company, but they did it because they could do it and they recognized the building blocks they had and they recognized how they could actually change very quickly. Now, in financial services, it's very difficult to suddenly go, let's do fluffy teddy bears instead of effect swaps, right? But you do have the ability to start thinking about um, what products, what services, how are they delivered, what scenarios, have we, have we truly understood what we need to do to prepare that? Is there some additional, um, exercising that we need to do planning we need to do to prepare organization for it and how can we really thrive and flourish at the same time as maintaining and, and perhaps helping our customers and clients thrive and flourish, flourish that's something that we did during brexit was that the original vote um, for the brexit vote was something that we actually helped our customers on the day to you know do you need any more money do you need some support calling them up to help them because it was it was clear that a lot of them were struggling on the day so so yeah i think you know we, we completely recognize Rick's uh, the model out there that Deloitte has published and it is much, much bigger than just technology. It's a fully embedded and ingrained culture in the organization that needs to drive true resilience and build these transformer companies that can reinvent themselves. Thanks, um, Mike. That's fascinating. Uh, just reflecting on what you and Rick said, and Marcus, I'd, I'd like to come to you now. Rick, you made a point that said, I've written down resilience by design, but assuming that if you're not resilient by design, um, that's a very difficult thing to recover from. You may not necessarily be resilient in adversity. And what Mike was saying about, you know, sort of almost pivoting uh, in, in, a, in adversity, I wonder whether um, your ability to pivot and respond and be resilient in adversity is more to do with the cognitive agility as you think about resilience that you had culturally beforehand as it was to being very quick to respond. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're the same thing. It's not just about response. It's it's sort of it's that mental arithmetic. It's those it's those hard yards. So um, have I got that right, Rick? Uh, Marcus, I will. But you know, if you're not resilient by design, when things go wrong, it's very difficult for you to. Yeah, it's absolutely right, Mark. And 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 I guess what we're also saying in by design, it's about creating not just the culture, but the options and the levers, and you know what they are. It's not necessarily about actually having a, a rigid plan to a scenario. It's about having the ability to execute certain options, different options, but you know in advance what they are because you've designed and constructed the organization to either have that diversity, that flexibility, that redundancy, but you know those levers and you know which ones you can pull and you know the effect it will have. So it's very much about trying to do that by design. And if I could just jump in on this as well, I think this is a really, really key point because if you're not operating and running your bank's technology or your company's technology platform the same way that you're changing it or the same way that you're DR testing it or resilience testing it, 
then you're not resilient by design. If you have to spend eight weeks preparing, preparing to do a big data center failover test, you're not resilient by design. If you, I mean, there's a difference between having a, a runway to plan and, and just having to write a unique, specific, bespoke plan for an event. If you have, if essentially your resilience plan is the same that you just run a platform over and over again, day in, day out, then you are very close to having that, that resilience by design in, in the way your technology works. Mm. Yes, spending eight, or if I think back to you know, my days, you know, even double that at times, um, my weeks to plan for um, that. That's not testing, that's doing what should be BAU, business as usual administration to keep things up to date, right? It should not take you um, that long. So if you, if you are better at this, and Marcus, I'll bring you in now, um, and this I, I, I gather is Cutover's aim, is to shrink that testing window right down whilst we're on the subject of testing so that you can run things, I guess, live on the day if you wanted to, that might be quite extreme and that might scare um, people. But can we just push on the door that says chaos monkey written on it and just kind of touch on what Mike said about, you know, designing things so that they'll fail because presumably that means you learn more about them and how they operate and how they are fixable um, in adversity. How much are you seeing clients looking to architect solutions now where they're actively looking for the problems in their own infrastructure and trying to get things to break so that they know what to do if they were to break in adversity? Is that something you could touch on for us? Yeah, I definitely think that the getting away from the the kind of the big test that is a is a proxy for what might you might do but something that you kind of rarely actually do in practice um is a key thing right i think whilst um organizations kind of do a lot of kind of data center failover tests etc that tends not to be that the route that they choose in a, in a crisis it's like much more likely to to fix forward and, and mitigate the problem uh, and then and then solve it without without doing that and that's because of a, a kind of the, the, the confidence in you know could i really do that in production and not cause other issues that are going to impact my customers worse than um the problem that i'm actually trying to solve we're definitely seeing an appetite kind of change around how does that test activity actually just become part of the muscle memory and so you know could you make that so repeatable that you really would do it and we have had an example reasonably recently where um, we've done a, a number of uh, failover tests from, from one data center to another. And then the, the team were tested and said, actually pick, pick a set of applications and fail them over today. Um, and that was it. And because the actual end-to-end -end process and the automation, et cetera, was in place, um, the team was confident to do that. And actually within 90 minutes had gone, gone and done that. Now I think that's definitely not the norm. But I think it is definitely the trend that, you know, being able to do that is feasible. Um, and if you do test things again and again, um, and you do it in a kind of more real world situations, then you just gradually build up that confidence and you go, actually, we could do this. And this is an effective escape route. This isn't just the thing that we do, um, kind of if, if absolutely all else failed. And I think that path from um, kind of going to going towards that that place where you build that repeatability and particularly where you can build that automation, um, you're certainly setting the scene that you can, can move towards that place. It's, it's a great aspiration for all firms to have. Um, it's not the easiest thing to do, you know, for large organizations that don't have um, the cultural history of 
trying to push the boundaries and also being led to a certain extent by regulatory expectations. Um, Rick, if I may, th this isn't something that can be fixed in the short term. This is a, a series of habitual repeated steps that are going to have to take place over many months, if not years. Is that something that's recognized by the regulators in terms of how they look at how feasible is it and how quickly could we move forward to achieve a more resilient state? Surely we've got some time to do what we need to do. We can't fix this overnight, right? So, no, it's not necessarily all fixable overnight, um, but the signs are the regulators are relatively impatient and want to move quickly. Now, if I look at the financial resilience journey post-financial crisis, it took about 10 years, I think, to gradually you know, build that up. The current, in the UK, the current um, uh, sort of regulatory position is, is three years initially to have implemented their approach. That's what they're setting out. Now, to be fair, their approach doesn't say that you will have fixed every hole that you'll have found by then, right. but they clearly are trying to put the pressure on to move more quickly. The other thing I would say is resilience is never a done thing. That's why it's a living, breathing, constant thing. Everything's changing all the time. So this is why we have the, the three things I've talked about before. Um, so, so it's not a done thing. The other thing I think we've tried to look at is, so if it's never a done thing, you know, how do we make sure, particularly in operational resilience, we, we can stay there for the long term. And I talked about the resilience through change and stuff as part of that. But again, when we look at financial resilience, one of the things that's been achieved is you know, very clear principles for financial resilience. What are they? Well, we must have liquidity. We must have capital adequacy, for example. Okay, if we've got those principles, are there indicators we can use that says this bank is resilient? Yeah, there are measures for liquidity, for capital adequacy. Can we do the same for operational resilience? I think we can. I think it's not necessarily easy because it will vary significantly by, by firm and by context and industry they're in. But we believe there is a set of operational indicators very similar to financial resilience indicators. We think there's a set of um, reputational indicators, again, which can be quite easily measured. And firms can set out a target within which they want to operate. And that way, over the long term, not only are they setting a goal, this is where I want to be, but they're saying, over the long term, that's the way I want to operate the business. That is a resilient business if we operate within these zones. I think, I, and Rick, I, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of companies already have that internally. Yeah, uh, what we really need to think about as a, as a sector is how do we sort of unify some of that? I mean, if you, there are already through PSC2 and a number of other legislations uh, the necessity to report in a consistent way to regulators, which is transparent to the public as well. And perhaps that's where this ends, is that there will become some indicators that are published uh, in the same way that the stress test report would be for uh, sort of financial resilience, essentially. We'd have stress testing for operational resilience. We'd have stress testing for reputational resilience. And they were very clear indicators and they'd be published the same way that some of the other ones are as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting when you think about that. That, again, kind of implies that there is a, a, a fairly, there's a journey that a lot of these big financial services firms will need to go on. And I completely agree because it's massive complexity in some of those companies to be able to achieve that. Three years to know where you are and start in some companies will be a massive challenge and some companies will be, will be okay. And it, you know, a lot of companies are already well on the journey to get there, but it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting challenge for those that are yet to start. 
Mike, just sticking with you, and then I, I want to bring Marcus back in. What Rick said about this doesn't end, and I think it's an important point mm -hmm. to make that just because you led the internal operational resilience transformation program within your, your own organization, that's not to suggest for a minute that in your organization or indeed any other, that that's now done, dusted, and stopped. All that's done. Going, right? Fine. It's all done. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and completely, you know, I'd love it if we stopped talking about failover testing. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean, right? Because at the end of the day, it should just be ingrained into the BAU of how we operate. There is no such thing as disaster recovery. There's just the service and the way that we deliver a service. To get to that, um, you know, special brownie influenced vision of, of the world will take a lot of time. And, it, and we may never get there for all services. At the end of the day, it would require quite a, quite a significant lift. But I'd love it to get to, to get it to a point where we have something like Chaos Monkey and we could apply that to our own firms and it just is continually poking holes at the way that we deliver service, whether it's poking holes through technology or whether it's poking holes in technology that people use that service customers, you know, something that actually helps us find those issues that prevent high availability and always on uh, and resilience so that we can continue to update our resilience by design. So we don't need to demonstrate through testing that we are resilient. We know we're resilient and we're demonstrating it a different way and that could play back into some of those, those KPIs that we were talking about a minute ago as well. And, and so I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot to do still to get to this, this nirvana of, um, of, of a resilient service and a resilient company. But it could be quite interesting when you talk about that crazy, wacky step that's gonna take some years to get to but there's definitely a big step between what we are, where we are now and where we really should be as a, as a sector in financial services, but really as, a, as anyone who's providing CNI or, or is a, uh, providing services to a, a large suite of customers or supporting a lot of money essentially moving around the, around the planet. We'll come back to um, critical national infrastructure in a second because Rick, there's something came out in the UK in the regulatory white paper this week that talked about uh, utilities, didn't it? And indeed, um, CNI. So maybe I could put you on notice um, for that after I've, after I've been to Marcus, if that's all right. Um, Marcus, uh, what Mike says about can we get away from talking about failover testing is absolutely right. In terms of dealing with complex and near constant rates of change, whilst having to maintain high levels of operational resilience. Is there anybody or any sector that you've seen that's been doing this well or seems to have been um, doing it well? I mean, I, I think about um, platforms that have been used like this one, the one that we're on at the moment in terms of recording this particular webinar. They've seen huge upticks in usage over the last few months. Would you highlight those sorts of organizations as ones that have responded well to this challenge of operating at pace? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you know, as you said, um, you know, kind of the change that has happened with with Zoom is a good example. Um, and I think the the ability of kind of technology first or or, or kind of software first organisations to respond, you know, is largely down to kind of that that has been kind of bred into their their nature around um, kind of getting code done, pushing in production, do it quickly, do it safely. Um, and therefore, you've got those inherent mechanisms already in place for being able to um, kind of make change happen and be confident um, that that's not going to cause a, a major problem. So you've got that that you've got that rapid cycling in the DNA already, so that you can 
um, shift incredibly quickly. Um, and I think I do see kind of lots of organisations are doing a kind of really good job of moving to that. You know, not just um, kind of necessarily modern software first, but it's you know it is it is taking a proper hold. And I think you know since since we started on sort of the the journey five years ago. Um, the way that we've seen kind of existing clients and new clients use Cutover has massively evolved, right? It was very much, can we do the manual stuff we used to do, but do it in a, in a slightly better, more efficient, more repeatable way. And it is now getting to much more of the, can we do it with a kind of new paradigm of um, far more frequent, smaller tests, less notice, more automation, um, and I, I, th I think that that shift is happening. And I think the the referenceability, particularly within the financial services industry, and reacting to that regulatory driver, I think is kind of driving. A, I suppose it is driving a lot of good discussion between between different organisations around that that making that path happen. And and that's I think back to you. That's critical, right? Because we're not just talking about small startups. We're not just talking about industries. We're talking about cities, communities, countries, the world, and trying to be more resilient. Um, the, the regulators put out like a national view of resilience about critical national infrastructure. Could you give us a little bit of a perspective as to, it isn't just about startups, is it? We're trying to look at resilience on a nation state and indeed international scale. Yes, certainly in the UK, as I mentioned, the National Infrastructure Commission uh, was tasked by government to look at resilience and they produced a report on that. Um, and it's made a number of recommendations to, to, the, to the government here. Um, the interesting things I think in there, the, the, there's, there's several, but one is, you know, this isn't about no disruption ever happening. Um, in fact, you know, counterintuitively, I think I'd argue that to be resilient, you do need occasional disruptions. You just hope you don't need the really big ones, but you need, you need things to go wrong so you can learn from it as a learning organization, and that will keep you resilient. Um, if nothing ever goes wrong, you will almost guarantee the resilience over time will, will disappear because people either aren't learning and, and, and it gets pushed to the side. What it's also then looking at is, okay, so if a disruption happens, this is also not about having no impact whatsoever. There will be some impact from it, but it starts to look at what is a tolerable or acceptable level of impact or what is an acceptable service level in disruption to customers. And I think that's an important perspective. Um, so, you know, if you can understand what is acceptable to your customers as a level of service, if something is disrupted, you can then start to build your resilience as well to, to meet that. So at least you always meet that sort of minimum level of, of service and disruption. And the other area I think is interesting, and again, it will be interesting to see if this moves into financial services as well, is they talk about transparency on resilience. And that's not just about the indicators we talked about before, but it's actually about publishing those service levels for disruption so that you know when something fails, the service you should expect back. It won't be 100%, but you know what it is. Um, and that, you know, I think is, you know, again, a significant step because if companies publish this, then they are even more committed to having to achieve it and report against it. But I think it's astonishing. If I think back not that very long, I mean, I, I'm going to say 20 years, that might seem like a long time. But if I think back 20 years ago, if you looked in the UK, and there are other countries in the world, of course, but if I think back to my own experience of being based here in the UK, and I looked at the list of critical national infrastructure 
finance wasn't really towards the top. In fact, it was quite far down. That's been a significant change, hasn't it? I think the financial crash that you talked about and indeed subsequent um, blips in the market have made it very, very clear just how integral in terms of national infrastructure, whether that be the plumbing that links um, banks and banking services together, it's front and center, isn't it? It is critical in terms of keeping the, world, the wheels of the world moving. Yeah, both you know, in terms of payments and liquidity, it, it's like the oil in the system. So, so nothing moves if the oil is there. If you've got an engine, there's no oil in it. It soon comes to a halt. So, and I think that's you know where financial services is uh, in terms of being part of that critical national infrastructure. It provides some of the infrastructure, but it provides some the oil as well. That makes it. Just one eye on the clock, um, gentlemen. If if we were to look forward now, actually, and we were at the um, we were at this conference in a year's time and hopefully that can be an in-person event where would you like the narrative to have shifted towards is it a case of saying um and, and this is different for each of you so mike within your own firm it's probably well we'd like to be on track in terms of the plans we put in place and marcus for you it may be that yes we'd like to be helping clients do the things that they set out to do but where would you like to think i'm going to ask you to dare to dream about what the next 12 to 18 to 24 months like might look like that may seem like a completely bizarre thing to do given how many of us could predicted where we'd be a year ago as to where we are now but but rick from a regulatory perspective presumably this is eyes down focus on um what we've asked you to do and just keep chipping away at it um we're not expecting you to fix every problem but we are expecting to hold you to account to very high levels right we just got to get through this is that fair i think it's more than that actually i i think the regulators here have made two or three significant step changes in the way people should be looking at resilience one we think it's a strategic issue and it's right at the top of the house as a strategic issue, that's about strategic choices and investment. Second, we think it is about having the right mindset. So it's a mindset of, you know, what if? So you can keep putting more and more controls in, but I'm going to ask you the same question. What if it fails? <laughs> okay, what if? Um, there's also a question about what next? Are you clear about what the next risk is and what the next opportunity is for the firm? So that's the mindset, the what if and the what next. The third thing they've done is, you've got to look at this from the outside in. It's not about you, it's about them. It's about your customers. When things go wrong, that's where the harm is. Think about them and how you make sure that that harm is reduced to the minimum level. So, so really, really clear. Or in terms of the bigger firms, you know, how do we maintain the financial stability? The fourth area I think that is potentially really, really significant in this area, and Mike touched on it earlier, is the stress testing. So they've introduced the concept of desk-based scenario stress tests. And I see these as very similar to what they've instituted in terms of financial resilience, the financial stress tests they do, but this is for operations. Now, there's a lot of work to be done and look at how you best do that. But I think, and again, it's in the National Infrastructure Commission report, I think that's a significant step change. If we can get that right and we can do stress testing of operations against uh, severe and plausible scenarios. We will learn a lot. We will learn a lot about just how resilient uh, uh, the systems are. And when we when we say that, I think it's not just about the systems, right? The more options you have that maintain you within your tolerable impact or your service level for disruption, the more resilient you will be. So if you've only got one option, 
and it's a highly resilient system, but that's it. When you ask the what if, and you've got nothing else, then you're gonna fail that test. If you ask the what if, and you've got something else, and then you've got something else, you've got the options. And I think that's, that's what we'll, we'll see play out. And, and Mike, from a practitioner within the industry, that it's eyes down, let's just get through this. Yeah, I think, I think what I'd hope is that more and more companies will get better at failure. And, and to Rick's point, you know, there, there, is, there is lots of what ifs. And if you have one plan, and, and, you're, and you're sitting on your laurels thinking, well, this is the most resilient thing that's on the planet, it's still going to go wrong at some point, particularly if it's technology, because at the end of the day, as we talked about before, technology is not infallible. Um, humans designed it, and any number of things could, could glitch out and cause a failure. But if you're good at failure, then that makes you, and you're more focused on your customers and your clients, and you're recovering more quickly, and you're learning from it, and closing that loop back into the design. So that, And that design could be an option two, or it could be a better option one, or it could be better process procedures, stock communication, whatever it is. Um, if, you, if you close that loop over the next year, we see more and more people that are having issues and coming out and, and uh, doing failure well, then I think that'd be a, a really positive outcome. We, we talked about Zoom earlier, and I think what Zoom has done over the last six months has been amazing in terms of their rate of change. They've had a couple of outages, but I think, and they've had a couple of issues, but I think they've done that well in terms of communicating fixing, turning it around, apologizing, being transparent with their user base, and everyone's forgiven and, and, and moved on to a point where Zoom has become a verb for video conferencing. So yeah, from my perspective, clearly within the organization, carry on with what we're doing, make sure that we continue to make improvements for, our, for the benefit of our customers and clients as a sector, as a, as a you know, country, as a planet, making sure that we get better at failure. It's, I mean, that's, that's, that is the classic quote, isn't it? Fail again, fail better. Um, I think that's kind of a, you know, a, um, a moniker for where we need to be going. Um, I thought I just made that up myself. No, 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 no. You, you got, you're up there with the best of them all, Mike. You really <laughs> and Mark, one of the things we say, you know, the advantage of becoming more resilient and feeling that is you become more confident. Yeah. And guess what? A more confident business is more prepared to take risks and to learn from them. Because it knows if something does fail, it knows it can deal with it. It, yeah. it has the options and it has a, a mechanism to deal with it. Yeah, completely. I, I agree with all of, of that. Um, if I may um, finish with you, um, Marcus, if we roll the clock forward, where would you like to be in terms of the clients that you're currently working with and indeed the platform that Cutover is offering you know, to clients? What do you see the next 12 to 18 months looking like if you could gaze into a crystal ball, which I'm going to ask you to do, by the way? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're generally going on a, a kind of a joint journey with our clients, and so you know, Cutover is obviously a it's a it's a SaaS platform that our clients subscribe to, and our take on this is how can technology, um, in terms of um, how you have that confidence of being able to fail over, be able to learn from it, um, kind of push you forward, and I think our our roadmap of what we want to do there is is very much driven by where our where our clients want to go. So it's um, for us, it's about making us more developer friendly. So it's incredibly easy to integrate into your existing systems. So you can automate as much as possible and do that in a flexible way. It's moving um, into the instant response piece, which is um, kind of by definition um, a lot more. Um, 
a lot more dynamic in terms of needing to be able to kind of on the fly um, diagnose, mobilize teams, come up with a plan of action. And however many plug and play responses you may already have, you're undoubtedly going to need to think up new things and be able to execute them incredibly quickly. And so for us, it's just going on that, that journey with our clients, prioritizing the things for our business that are going to kind of help, help, um, help most. Um, you know, a good example is, you know, how do you take your 3,000 kind of application widget level plans and, and kind of come up with the right framework that maps into what the customer cares about? Um, and doing that kind of with ease in a repeatable way that you can very quickly understand if this happens, what's the impact of it and how do I respond? I think for us, it's um, it's really just learning day in, day out from the things that we're doing with our customers and um, and really evolving the platform to, to, to be fit for making that journey over the next 12, 24 months. Thank you, Marcus. Um, just in the brief time that we have um, remaining, just if I can just do a couple of uh, recaps, just things that I've heard and um, we'll produce some notes that can go out um, at, at the end of this. But Rick, you talked about, you know, if you're not resilient by design, um, you won't be resilient in, in adversity. Um, Marcus, you talked about, um, you, you know, trying to aspire to move a huge amount of what I would call BAU work into an automated environment so that you can give yourself the flexibility in adversity. Mike, you talked about the fact that this is never a done thing, right? We, we will constantly be challenging ourselves to think about how we think about things from a customer-centric point of view and framing the challenge of resilience in a manner that the customer would understand. We talked about critical national infrastructure. We talked about resilience not necessarily being a technology thing. Rick, you talked about those three pillars of finance, of reputation and operational resilience and how in the future we may actually see statistics and thresholds and scorecards against all three of those. This is such a huge topic. Um, we could never cover it um, universally in an hour, but it's been my pleasure to welcome um, you, the audience, and also my guest today. So to Mike, to Rick, and to Marcus, thank you very much. And to you for listening, thank you. Stay safe. We'd love to see you in person this time next year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.